Good morning. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about little Megan. When I was a child, I was a brat, <laughs> like a huge brat. And one of the best stories that uh, explains how much of a brat I was happened the first day back from Christmas break in second grade. We're halfway through the school year, and my teacher, Mrs. Hendon, says, class, we have a new student. Her name is Jackie. She just moved here from, uh, from North Carolina. It's hard being new. Please make her feel welcome. Well, I don't think I was listening, <laughs> because that afternoon, I get on the bus, and I find my usual seat, and I set my backpack down next to me, and I stare out the window, and I'm giving off every sign that says, don't talk to me. If it was 2018 instead of 1998, I would have put my noise-canceling headphones on and just been dead to the world. Well, Jackie gets on the bus and sees this girl that's in her class. I've spent all day talking to her, she thinks, and she has a seat next to her. I have a friend on the bus. That's great news. So she comes up to me, and she points to, my, points to where my backpack is sitting and says, can I sit here? And in all seriousness, I look at her and I say, no, that's where my backpack goes. And I turn out the window, and that's it. <laughs> she walks away. Brat. <laughs> so the next day, Jackie gets on the bus and for some reason still wants to sit with me. And I don't really know why. But she asks again, can I sit with you? No. The third day, she gets on the bus and finally I say, fine. And I pick my backpack up and move it so she can sit down. And then I set it between us like a wall. And I turn out the window and we don't talk the entire bus ride. This happened for about a week. And to be honest, I really have no idea why Jackie kept asking to sit with me. I was being very rude. But she did for some reason. And I'm so glad that she did, because as soon as we started talking, we became instant best friends. We became such good friends that our families became friends. In fact, our moms are still best friends and have dinner with each other all the time 20 years later. And Jackie's one of those people who, no matter how long I go without talking to her, she'll always have a really special place in my heart, because she was so important to me for so long. But that never would have happened if she hadn't kept asking, despite how rude I was being. That's exactly what we're going to read about in today's passage. God had no reason to pursue you or to love you. But that's what he did because that's who he is. Our passage this morning is from Ephesians 2. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of us, obeying the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. 
He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for it. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be holy and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Paul mentions two things in this passage that made us dead. Our sin and our disobedience. Disobedience, often translated as trespasses, is a willful act. That is a choice. When you climb a fence and trespass onto someone else's property, you know that you shouldn't be there, but you're doing it anyway. But a sin, sin's a little bit different. The word that's translated as sin is actually a word used in archery that means missing the mark. We know what it means, what it feels like to miss the mark, to not be the parent or the spouse or the friend that we know we should be or that we could be, to not be the student or the employer or the Christian that we could be or should be. We all know that feeling. And it's not really a choice always. Sometimes I do make a decision to not be a good friend, but usually I just am not the friend that I want to be in those instances. It's not that I choose to be a bad friend, it's just that I'm not always a great friend. And so these two things, disobedience and sin, combine to cause death. Now, death is the analogy that Paul uses. Um, and this analogy, when, when death is used throughout Scripture, it usually means separation. When we're physically dead, we're separated from our loved ones. When we're spiritually dead, we're separated from God. And this is because God is so holy and so perfect that he cannot be around imperfection. He just can't be in the presence of sin because it's so outside of his nature. But a lot of people think that they can bridge this gap by being good enough people. If I'm a good enough person, I can spend, I can gain eternal life or eternal union with God and go to heaven. 
but this is a flawed thinking. This is flawed thinking. I understand why people think it, because when we look around, we see things on the news, we look at our neighbors, we understand that a lot of times we really are better people than the people we see on the news. I have no doubt that there is someone in your life that you can point to and say, I'm a better person than them. But this, this isn't what God uses to measure us. Maybe you're a really good person, but you're still a person. God uses himself as the measuring stick. The best analogy that I've ever heard to explain this is um, an analogy that involves LeBron James. And I really like LeBron James, uh, not because I like basketball, but because we're from the same town and I feel a kindred connection to him. So LeBron James has a very good vertical jump. We can all agree on this. Yeah, he can jump really high. And I, I know I may not look like much, I'm really short, and in these heels, I probably don't look like I can jump very high. But the truth is, I can actually jump exactly as high as you think I can, not very high. (laughs) So LeBron James is objectively a higher jumper than I am. But that doesn't really matter when the goal is jumping high enough to touch the moon, right? Yeah, he can jump higher than me, but he still can't touch the moon. And the thing is, that's the yardstick that God uses. He is perfect, and he cannot be around imperfection. And so maybe you really are a great person, but... You're not perfect, and that's what God needs. So that's what Paul says in the first three verses of this passage, but in verse four, we see that God isn't content to settle for that. Verse four starts, but God. And these two words, but God, are so important. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, these two words in and of themselves contain the entirety of the gospel of Christ. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. You see, the thing is, God is not out to get you. He's out to save you. He loves you. This verse tells us that he loves us so much that even though we were dead, he still loved us and he went to great lengths to save us. I've been singing about how Jesus loved me since I could crawl, but I didn't really understand what, what it meant, what that sentence meant, until I was 16 in the parking lot of a Holiday Inn Express in Parkersburg, West Virginia. The mission trip that I was on with my youth group, 
um, we decided to have a spontaneous worship night in that parking lot of the hotel that we were staying in. And for some reason, in that moment, it just all hit me what it means to be loved by the God who created laughter and invented the concept of color and the God who sacrificed everything in a gruesome and brutal way and then rose three days later just to prove how much he loves me. That's the God that we're loved by. That's the God that you're loved by. And there are still times in my life where I take that love for granted, but then I'm hit with a wave of remembrance and oftentimes my knees buckle and I just sob right there on the floor, not out of shame or guilt, but out of awe that this is who I'm loved by. And I don't want to move on from this point too quickly. I want to sit here in this moment for a second with you because I need you to understand this. If there's nothing else that you hear me say this morning, please hear this. You are loved by that God. As you are right now, Verse, four, verse five says, you were loved even when you were dead in your sin. There's nothing that you have to do to prove yourself. There's nothing that you have to do to earn that love. And the thing is, God's love is not like our love. You're not capable of loving that way. This unconditional kind of love. If you're a parent I hope that you love your kids with everything inside you. And I hope that there is nothing you can think of that would make you not love your kids. But if you're being honest, you love them a lot more when they're cuddled up on your lap, whispering, I love you, mommy, I love you, daddy, than you do when they're having a temper tantrum in the cereal aisle of Walmart, and you have had it up to just about here, mister. It's not that you don't love them in those moments, but you maybe like them a little less. But God's love is not like that. There has never been a moment where he hasn't loved you with everything in him. And there has never been a moment where you haven't been the object of his affection. You don't have to earn his love and he likes you all the time. And it's by that love, by that grace, that you have been saved. You see, Christ, when Christ died, he died when we were, he died physically when we were spiritually dead. And he was raised physically so that we could be raised spiritually. And then not only that, but then we were, um, verse 7 says, we were seated in heavenly places. 
Because not only did Christ's death and resurrection grant you grace, it made God see you like Christ. That's what grace does. If you accept God's grace, he sees you as perfect. He sees you as touching the moon. That grace is a gift that God has given you. It's the rocket backpack that you can put on to get up there. But you have to accept it. You have to put it on. Verse 8 and 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation's not a reward for the good things we've done, so none of us can boast. This grace is something that's unique to Christianity. Every other religion in the world is based on works. It's based on proving yourself, earning your salvation, or whatever it is that that religion is trying to get you to reach. Judaism and Islam are both based on living by the law. You have to live by the law to get eternal life. Um, Buddhism is about reaching or achieving nirvana. Hinduism is about appealing to specific gods and making those gods like you. But Christianity is different. You see, we know that we can't, make, we can't do it ourselves. You're never going to be good enough for God. But he said, you don't have to be. He said, I know you can't do this on your own. So I'm going to make a way so that you don't have to. Let me help you, he said. And in verse 10, he says, we are God's masterpiece. And he created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You're God's masterpiece. And you've been created anew. That's what grace does. A lot of times the analogy that we use for sin is um, that, that sin makes us dirty. But when you're dirty, you can clean yourself. I like the analogy that Paul uses of death because when you're dead, there's nothing you can do about that. If you're dead, you're dead, right? Doctors can't help you. You can't help yourself. Loved ones can't help you. You're dead. That's why you need a God who is resurrected and who is resurrecting you. And so if you've never fully grasped the extent of God's love for you, then I hope that changes this morning. He went to unimaginable lengths to prove that love to you. 
because he couldn't imagine spending eternity without you. And if you already know how much God loves you, then I rejoice with you this morning. And I hope that this reminder is an encouragement for you on your journey with Christ. You see, you were dead to sin, but God loved you too much to leave you there. God's love permeated that backpack wall that you set up. Really, there's no reason that anyone would want to be my friend. But God does a lot of things that don't make sense. He's asking to sit with you. Are you going to let him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we don't deserve, for the love that you've given us that we haven't earned. And we thank you that you made a way for us to be with you when there's no reason for you to want to be with us. But you do because that's who you are. We thank you that we were dead, but you made us alive. That we were unlovable, but you loved us anyway. God, we're so grateful for who you are and what you've done. In the name of Jesus, amen. Mm -hmm.